This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In his new book, Narconomics, Tom Wainwright examines the incentives, the competitive pressures, and the government impediments faced by drug cartels. In doing so, he reveals that they follow the same economic rules that govern businesses in any other field. We spoke today. It seems like the worm has begun to turn when it comes to the war on drugs in the United States uh, a little bit, but definitely when it comes to international efforts to try to uh, shut down uh, drug trafficking and the production of of, uh, narcotics overseas. For those people who still believe, which I hear occasionally, we really haven't, we just really haven't tried. We haven't tried hard enough to eliminate the drug trade. What what do you tell those people? Well, I think what I tell them is that if you look at the economics of the business, it's fairly clear that it's not just a question of pushing harder on, on the same thing. It's The problem is that we're really pushing in the wrong area. And specifically, I think the mistake that we've made for many years now is to focus very heavily on the supply side of this business when, in fact, I think if we're to maintain prohibition, um, then the demand side would actually be the more effective place to push. And if you look at the business of cocaine, for instance, what you see there is that what we're trying to do is raise the price of coca leaf in South America. And the idea is that by raising the price of coca leaf, the price of cocaine will go up and so people will consume less of it in the United States and in Europe and other consumer countries. But when you look at the economics of the business, it's fairly clear that that's not going to happen. The cost of all the leaf that you need to make a kilo of cocaine is about $400 in Colombia. And that kilo is worth about $150,000 in the United States. So imagine if you're very, very effective and you double the cost of that coca leaf and all of that is transferred onto the consumer, then that kilo is now going to cost $150,400, i.e. almost exactly the same. In other words, even if you're very, very effective in doubling the price of the raw ingredient, you're going to have almost no effect on the price of the finished product. And in the book, Narconomics, I, I make the comparison with the paint uh, market, if you like, the, or the market for artwork. And the idea is that if you wanted to drive up the price of artwork, you might say, well, OK, the, the main ingredient of paintings is paint. So let's try and drive up the cost of a box of paint. And of course, in reality, if you increase the cost of paints from $50 to $100 or, or whatever, it's not going to have a big impact on the price of a million-dollar painting. And that's what we're doing really with cocaine. We're focusing on this area where it just doesn't work. There seem to be a lot of political reasons why governments would prefer to fight supply than demand. I think that's right. I mean, for, for consumer countries like the United States and the countries of Western Europe, Shifting the burden onto the supply side means that it can stay out of their countries effectively. I think it's it's easier and more convenient for those countries to say, okay, cocaine comes from South America, and uh, and so let's try and keep it there. And in a way, you know, I can I can see how this is a easy thing to sell to the public because it sounds like it makes so much sense that you should try and nip the problem in the bud and and really go to the very root of the problem. but the economics of it don't really support that. That The problem is that at that stage in the supply chain, it's just so worth so little that really whatever you do there isn't going to make a big difference to the final price. And I think still, though, it is easier for politicians here in the States and, and back home in Europe to talk about you know doing more in Colombia or doing more in Mexico when really what they ought to be doing is doing more in their own country. What are the best metrics for 
under appreciating the idea that the the war on drugs domestically and internationally has just been a failure. Clearly, the price and purity of the product on the market is a should be a clear indicator to some extent. But what do you look at? Well, you're right. You can look at various things, including price and purity. Consumption is is one thing that I think is important to people in in countries like the states and in Europe because here. One thing that bothers people probably more than anything else is the number of people taking and, and taking up these illegal drugs. And the numbers there are, are not encouraging. If you look back to a big conference on drugs that the UN held in 1998, the slogan of that conference back then, nearly 20 years ago, was a drug-free world, we can do it. And since then, uh, worldwide consumption of marijuana has gone up by about 50%. Consumption of cocaine has gone up by about 50%. And consumption of opiates, including things like heroin, has nearly trebled. So far from moving towards a, a drug-free world, we seem to actually be moving quite quickly in, in the very opposite direction. And, and that's why I think fairly major rethink is needed in the way that we approach this problem. At the discussion uh, about your book, it was said, and I, I forget who said it, that people like uh, Pablo Escobar, among others, were among the first people to identify opportunities presented by globalization. So what has changed in the drug market over the past 30 or 40 years in terms of the ability and, and the level of sophistication of drug cartels in getting their product ultimately to market? Well, you're right that it's a classic example of globalization. All the world's cocaine comes from just three countries in the Andes. Every last speck of it that you find here in Washington or in London or in Moscow or Beijing or Sydney or anywhere else, all originates in either Colombia, Bolivia or Peru, just this one small part of the world. And the machinery involved in distributing this drug around the world is, is extraordinary and it's only become more sophisticated over time. And, and what I demonstrate in the book is that these organizations which sell cocaine are using exactly the same strategies as other companies that sell other products to ensure that their product gets to market in the best way possible. And so they're engaging in things like franchising their brand, they're offshoring some of their operations to cheaper countries, they pay a lot of attention to public relations, they're even getting into things like corporate social responsibility. And so every conceivable feature that you can imagine of globalization is one that the cartels have themselves picked up on. What does corporate social responsibility uh, within drug cartels look like? I, I'm thinking, rem remembering Pablo Escobar was a fairly popular uh, person, paid for a lot of uh, schooling and, uh, and sort of infrastructure projects himself. But what, what, does, what does that look like? Well, you're right. That's exactly what he did. And it's extraordinary that someone like him, who was responsible for the murders of thousands of people in Colombia, enjoyed any public support whatsoever. And you see the same thing happening in Mexico. People like El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman, the guy who runs the Sinaloa cartel, enjoys you know more public support than you might expect in some parts of the country. And the reason that he's able to do this is because, as you say, he and other cartels engage in these public investment projects. You can go to places in Mexico where there are churches which have plaques on saying, you know, constructed with kind donations from so-and-so, and, and this guy is a local cartel boss. In some places, they've set up primitive social security systems. And they've done all of these things in order to try and bolster their support among the public, because it's only with the support of the local communities in which they operate that they can avoid being uh, reported to the police. And it seems to be working. And it's important to be clear that it's entirely cynical on their part. There's nothing corporate, you know, there's no, nothing socially responsible about drug cartels. But 
from their point of view, they see this as a way of ensuring that they have just enough support to to survive without being uh, reported. You mentioned that recruiting uh, subordinates within a drug organization often takes place within prisons. Now, and how does that change the business? Well, prisons are perfect recruitment places for the drug cartels. One of the big problems that they face is with their human resources. They have very, very rapid turnover of staff because the murder rate in the countries in which they operate is so high. And their members who aren't murdered are very frequently arrested. If you look at the people um, trafficking cocaine from the Caribbean to the UK, for instance, about one in four of those drug mules is arrested. This is a very, very big turnover. And, and not only that, of course, the problem is compounded by the fact that they can hardly advertise for new members of staff. You can't place an ad in the paper. You can't look on LinkedIn. But fortunately for them, we've built these things called prisons, which are perfect places for them to do their recruitment. It's where you get together all of the unemployed young men with criminal records in the country, put them in one place, lock them in for a few years. And if they're not members of the gang when they go in, then they definitely will be by the time they come out. You paint a picture of how cartels choose to use violence and when they choose not to use violence. So what are some of the key elements that help drug organizations, rival drug organizations, decide to cooperate uh, rather than take greater pains to destroy each other in order to grow their territory? Well, it's all about aligning the incentives in the right way because drug cartels respond to incentives in the same way that any other businesses do. And what you see in Western Europe, for instance, where it's important to be clear, we've got a, a big drug problem there, but we don't have a big violence problem there. And it seems to me that part of the reason for this is that the cartels that operate there face a much higher cost in hiring new members than they do in Latin America. If a gang in El Salvador sends its members off to kill other, other rival gangsters and, and be killed, there's very little cost to the gang or the cartel in recruiting replacement members because they can do it through this incredible job shop that they've got in, in the form of prisons. What you see in Europe is that it happens less often. There was an interesting study done that I cite in the book of big cocaine deals that go wrong. And it found that in two-thirds of these cases, which were very, very big deals, you know, often worth many millions of dollars, in two-thirds of them, the problem was resolved without the use of violence. And the authors of this study concluded that the reason for this was that for these uh, drug trafficking groups that operate in Western Europe, the cost of replacing members of staff and the cost of finding new contacts in this hidden market is so great that it's actually better for them. It's more worth their while to try to resolve things in a relatively amicable way. So by changing the incentives, you can make these drug traffickers somewhat less likely to resort to violence, although violence will always be part of a business in which uh, you aren't able to use courts to enforce contracts. Of course, violence is the only way that you can really enforce them. So the reason then, uh, if I understand you correctly, that uh, two groups that are making a, a large-scale drug deal it is a human resources problem. That is, the people actually involved in that deal are staff and would be more difficult to replace than cheap labor down south. That's right. I mean, it's partly the staff, and it's also a question of the contacts. I mean, in, if you take an example of one of these studies from the Netherlands, it, it, there was a guy who was involved in importing cocaine from Brazil, and he had a deal go wrong, but he, he just decided that finding a new trusted contact in, in South America from whom he could import large quantities of cocaine was going to involve a huge business cost and a huge risk. And so he decided that he would rather stick with this existing contact, which had ripped him off once. 
than exact a terrible revenge and, and begin the very long and expensive process and very difficult process of finding somebody else in that country that was capable of sending a ton or more of cocaine to the Netherlands, which is... Search costs. Sure, huge search costs. And, and because of the nature of illegal and, and hidden markets, those costs are, are vast. And so it's, it's an interesting one that, you know, if, if the conditions are right, then people who take part in those illegal markets are actually somewhat less... Uh, conflict-prone, even than people in legal markets who might be more likely to resort to the courts to try to enforce these contracts in, in the event of a disagreement. We've been using a lot of terms that are thrown around regularly within business, and people probably aren't used to hearing them in in, uh, in terms of a, of a drug cartel. But give us a sense of just how sophisticated the or- these organizations can be. They can be pretty sophisticated. And, and we heard in, in the discussion we had earlier with Moises Naim how these cartels often use professionals as part of their business. Uh, many of them have quite sophisticated lawyers. Um, they also have been contracting chemists in the production of, of drugs like crystal meth. I mean, it's if you watch Breaking Bad, it's actually a bit closer to the truth than you might think. There are people with chemistry degrees who, who are involved in this. And in Mexico, another interesting trend that we've seen recently is the theft of oil from Pemex. The Well, I was going to say the state monopoly. It no longer is actually following their reforms, but the theft of oil from the, from the oil pipes in Mexico. And to do that, they have contracted real experts. I mean, uh, diverting oil from a, a pipe is not an easy business if you don't want to explode. <laughs> and so the cartels there have recruited and in some cases kidnapped engineers from Pemex to help them from do, to help them do this. And so you do find that in, especially in some of the diversified industries into which they've, they've got into, they do often use real experts who are either paid or intimidated into helping them. In keeping with this theme of using uh, standard business terms, El Chapo was arrested again. In the event of a CEO removal, how do these organizations uh, deal with that? Are there are there clear lines of secession or people who are groomed to become the the next top drug kingpin? It's a good question. There's often a lot of speculation about this. You know, who's next in line in the Sinaloa cartel? I think it's fair to say that on the whole, you tend to have less than orderly successions in, in the drugs business. Very often, what you find is that when the leader of one cartel is either arrested or killed. There's a, a sort of um, succession battle among his would-be heirs. And there are good examples of this. In, in Mexico, for instance, a few years ago, the police managed to kill a guy called Hector Beltran Leva, who ran a, a very big cartel in sort of central Mexico. And following his death, people were optimistic that this would be a good thing because this guy was a really serious baddie. He was doing terrible things in, in central Mexico. But if anything, it seemed to have exactly the opposite effect. The the level of violence in the part of the world that he controlled went up. And the standard explanation of this, which I think is probably true, is that two or three of his lieutenants began a very bloody battle for control of the territory that he had vacated. And I think the the problem there, I remember talking to Felipe Calderon about this, the previous president of Mexico, and I asked him what had gone wrong in that case. And his answer was that the 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 failure really had been a failure to provide a strong police force to fill the vacuum that had been created when that guy was killed. In other words, when you know when the dominant cartel leader goes, the power vacuum has to be filled by the legitimate authorities. And if the state fails to do that quickly, then the danger is that other criminal groups will rush in to fill that vacuum. And that's what seemed to be happening there in Mexico. So the removal of a CEO, you know, it's not, not necessarily bad. It could be good. But 
very often it comes with uh, unintended consequences, and that was certainly the case in that instance in Mexico. In this fight over legalization versus decriminalization, uh, as it plays out here in the United States and in other countries, it seems irrelevant whether or not drug-producing countries that ship almost all their product to another country, it seems almost irrelevant whether or not they would legalize or decriminalize in terms of violence. You're probably right to some extent. I mean, Uruguay is is legalizing at the moment. Towards the end of this summer, we're likely to see the first sales of marijuana in uh, pharmacies in Uruguay, and that shouldn't really have very much impact on anything in, in the United States or in Europe. I mean, because they're effectively fighting over the privilege of selling to someone else, not necessarily uh, to sell to their own populations. Well, that's right. And also in, in these countries in, in Latin America, consumption of drugs actually is very low. You know, we associate Mexico and Colombia with drugs, but actually the, the proportion of ordinary Mexicans or Colombians who have taken drugs is far, far lower than the proportion here in the States or, or in Europe. They're, they're not particularly popular products there yet. And so legalization in those countries, I, I think, would probably have a limited effect. I think that what all of those countries are waiting for is legalization in the big consumer markets, which means principally the United States and, and Western Europe. Although actually, having said all of that, some emerging economies in Latin America are becoming much bigger consumers themselves. Brazil now is the world's second biggest consumer of powder cocaine and the biggest bar none of crack cocaine. It's a very, very big business there. And as the middle class emerges in these big growing economies, you're going to see an increase in cocaine consumption, which is a a typically middle class vice. Tom Wainwright is author of the book Narconomics, How to Run a Drug Cartel. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.